stop me if you've heard this one. He said to his friend, if the British march by land or sea from the town tonight, hang a lantern aloft in the belfry arch of the North Church Tower as a signal light, one if by land and two if by sea, and I on the opposite shore will be, ready to ride and spread the alarm through every Middlesex village and farm for the country folk to be up and to arm. So that's part of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's poem, Paul Revere's Ride, and we're talking about that North Church he mentioned today. Most people know it from the poem, which simplifies the work of quite a few revolutionary-era gents into an epic story of one Paul Revere. Let's pour one out for William Dawes, Robert Newman, and John Pulling Jr. for a second. Now, it's been 300 years since the Old Norse Church was founded, some 250 years since Paul Revere's fabled ride, and the Old North Church and historic site has been named a site of conscience. And in part of that, they're changing their programming to account for the church's and Boston's role in the slave trade. I'm Jennifer Smith with Commonwealth Magazine, and today I'm joined by Nikki Stewart, Executive Director of Old North Illuminated. Thanks so much for being here, Nikki. Thanks for having me. So our listeners just got a bit of a poetry reading, part of Paul Revere's ride. What is the layperson accurate summation of what happened at the church that night, some 50 years or so after its initial construction? Sure. Well, that's a great question, because Revere's poem is not a history lesson. It's kind of political propaganda or art. (laughs) So I think the biggest difference, um, at least the most significant to me, is that Revere was not a single actor. Um, He was part of a network of patriots um, really throughout the state, throughout New England. Um, He received information, he passed it on to others, and there were riders that night throughout Middlesex County. Um, And I think that's the biggest takeaway. Um, The smallest takeaway, but the biggest discrepancy, is that the, the lantern signals were not a signal to Paul Revere, as the poem suggests. They were a signal from Paul Revere. That is so interesting. So let's get into a bit of the history of the North Church historical site itself before we delve into kind of its different components. What does the historical site include? Sure. So we have about a half acre campus in the North End, um, so a lot of space. And um, visitors, in addition to visiting the church itself, which includes um, access to the sanctuary, the gallery, the bell ringing chamber, the crypt, uh, which people love, uh, we also have a um, early 19th, um, sorry, early 20th century um, chapel that was originally built for Italian Protestants, uh, which is unique, um, that houses our gift shop. We also have the Clough House, which is one of the oldest um, homes in Boston. Um, and that houses the print, the printing office of Eads and Gill, which is a great uh, interactive history experience. And then we have several gardens and outdoor spaces and a parish house. So there's really a lot to see when you come to us. And so Old North Illuminated manages, maintains, and interestingly, for me, kind of in some of this literature, uh, interprets the site. So what does that end up meaning? How does your programming help interpret a historic landmark? Yes. Um, So I think it's important for listeners to know that Old North is still an active church today. Um, It is the oldest standing church building in the city. Um, Today is home to an Episcopal congregation. 
And so um, the church is the church and we are the historic site is one way to think about it. And so we, as you said, um, we manage the preservation of the space first and foremost, um, often in partnership with the National Park Service. But we also do all of the um, educational and interpretive programming. So we think, you know, we we plan for the visitor experience. We operate the site in the day to day. And we also produce uh, materials and curricula that go out to classrooms across the country. So we uh, we keep ourselves busy. And so how has this programming changed over the years? It's been an interesting past few years in particular, but obviously for activists, for history buffs, um, kind of reckoning with somewhat of the tangled history of Boston and especially its its role during the Revolutionary and then Civil Wars uh, can be a little bit of a, a tangle, I think, for, for the average person who mostly associates Boston history with tri-point hats and walking along the, the Freedom Trail. So how has, before this current effort, which we'll get into in a second, um, how has the programming kind of changed? How has it presented the idea of the North, uh, Old North Church? Yeah. So Old North Church, uh, this is the church's 300th anniversary year, which is a huge milestone. So we are a historic site with 300 years of history, and yet we are most known for uh, literally one minute in that 300 years, one minute when two lanterns were hung. Uh, But we have really, in the last few years, tried to expand our programming to give visitors more of that history. Because we think that the history of Old North really reflects the complexity, uh, not only of Boston's history, but really of our nation's history. Um, Because you can't Uh, You can't talk about those lantern signals without talking about things like colonialism and enslavement and, you know, the, the global economy, geography, all of those things. And so we really try to lean into that complexity. Um, And I think being Old North Church, you know, being a national historic landmark, being part of the National Park Service, it it kind of gives us a, a credibility in a way, and it certainly gives us visibility and so we've really tried to uh, to use our powers for good, so to speak, um, and to give people uh, a real honest history um, of Old North and Boston and the United States. So how does it go when you try and complicate history, especially something that might be so ingrained in people's minds, if they've heard the poem or if they have any other kind of association with the church, and then you say, well, even that poem is not quite right. How how does that conversation usually end up happening? Yeah, so I think what's challenging is that so much of what we learned about U.S. history at least in elementary school, but probably beyond that as well, is really more myth than fact, right? We learn the mythology of our nation's founding. Um, We don't really learn the complexity of it. And so, you know, you you bring up a good point of what happens when it gets complicated. I think what what we first and foremost try to um, help people understand is that it is already complicated. It is already messy. Um, And we have been really fortunate to have a research fellow with us um, for the last year um, who has given us a lot of new research. And I think new research is always an opportunity to look at how you tell a story. And it 
kind of explains why the story is different now, right? The story is bigger and the story is deeper. Um, and I think for the most part, our visitors have really been excited for that. And a, a lot of the programming, of course, that you folks do is also geared at kind of K-12 education. Uh, so sort of walking kids through a more complicated version of their history as they're possibly learning it in parallel, more from the myth perspective in the school. So can you give me uh, an example of something that might need to kind of be gently pushed against? Well, I think the way that we teach and learn about and talk about and remember slavery um, in the United States is is one of those areas where it, it, it needs to be pushed, right? And we need to change the way that we think about that. Um, we do uh, two programs, one at the fifth grade level and one for high school students that both look at cacao and colonial chocolate as a way to talk about you know, everything from the economy and geography um, to really all of Boston's colonial history. I think folks don't realize how much um, or how important the commodity of cacao was in Boston's economy at that time. And what we try to emphasize is that Old North Church's connections to enslavers and enslavement are not unique um, certainly not in the North, not in cities. I think people often think of slavery as a Southern plantation problem, not a Northern problem. But we really try to emphasize that we're not unique. We just have good records, right? We, we just can prove it and we can talk about it. And so pushing back on those misconceptions about the scope of slavery in the United States, I think is one of the biggest areas where we can have an impact, both, both in classrooms, but and for our visitors as well. Well, you mentioned some new research and kind of how that's been incorporated into the programming. What has come up recently about non-recent events that maybe surprised you or might surprise visitors to the site, uh, specifically around kind of the history of, of slavery? Well, one of the stories that um, Dr. Crumley, who was our research fellow, was able to uncover, or I'll say start to uncover because there's always so much more. Um, but is that of a woman named Beulah Spine? Um, and I, you know, I can't remember all of the details and I don't want to get it wrong. So there's a video about her on our website. But what I think is significant um, about Beulah's story and significant to today is how her story illustrates that race really is a social construct and that it always has been and that that construct changes over time. Because in her um, birth record, her race is not indicated. And at that time, that would indicate that someone is white because uh, race was very important to people of the past. It's, it's not just important today. It was important then too. And it was important that we know who is white and who is not in those records. Um, and yet when she was, um, I believe it's when she was married, um, she was listed as a mixed race woman and then later was listed as a free black woman. And so we we are very confident that she was of Nipmuc descent. So she is an indigenous woman and it's possible that she was Afro indigenous. We know that she married a free black man. And so perhaps being married to a black man changed um, society's perception of her race. And so we don't know if her identity um, ever changed from her perspective, but the way other people identified her did change. And I think 
that's incredibly relevant to how we talk about race today and how it continues to really just reinforce um, power structures. And of course, there's a long history of uh, involvement in, you know, positive and negative ways uh, between church facilities and organizations and uh, slavery, whether it be kind of helping uh, freed slaves move up and down the, the country or uh, whether or not they did not do that. So how does the Old North Church actually tie into kind of the history of specifically New England slavery? So slavery is a part of Old North's history really from the beginning. Um, our first rector, um, Dr. Timothy Cutler, was himself an enslaver. Um, he enslaved at least one person, a woman named Anne. And um, what's interesting about Dr. Cutler is that he was very active in a group called the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in Foreign Parts, I think is the full name. <laughs> But essentially, it is um, an organization that's dedicated to spreading Christianity, and um, they're very concerned with spreading Christianity to um, African and indigenous people in colonial Boston um, and in, as they said, the New World. And so he's very successful in this endeavor. Um, he has, uh, the, the records indicate more um, baptisms of Black congregants than any of his peers at that time. But what's um, I think what's interesting about that is that it doesn't mean that he believes in racial equality. Um, we're very careful to say that the church was integrated um, and perhaps more so than a lot of other churches in Boston, but it was not a place of equality. Um, it was still a place of of deep segregation. And I think throughout time, you know, we see that Christianity is used to uh, both reinforce slavery um, and to support abolition. And so um, Old North story is quite complicated. And we're really just starting to get into our um, 19th century records and to understand where the church and its congregants fell in the abolition movement. That's really kind of our next frontier of knowledge that we're trying to uncover. Well, one thing that seems just so fascinating to me about this is, as you mentioned, it's still an active church. There is an active church in Old North here uh, with an active congregation. So uh, how exactly is there or is there not, you know, uh, a reckoning about the history of the congregation itself when, if you're going to worship at that site, you are surrounded by presentations about the complicated history of the site that you're going to worship in? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think, you know, my organization, Old North Illuminated, um, is really in the position to uncover knowledge, right? And to to educate and to like bring forth the facts. But the congregation, and I will say that, that that is in many ways a kind of neutral and academic endeavor, right? It's not personal. It's not emotional. Um, but for the congregation, I think it is much more emotional um, because the congregation really, I would say, are the spiritual descendants of the the earlier congregations. And I think it is a, a much more kind of uh, personal experience for congregants to wrestle with what that means. Um, and I think the, the church leadership um, Reverend Cadwell and the vestry have been doing a great job of leading that process. 
This summer in particular has been kind of an interesting time for recontextualizing some pretty famous Boston landmarks. Uh, what comes to mind is there was a two-floor slavery in Boston exhibit that went in at Faneuil Hall, which of course, as we know, had a very fraught history. And I think the city of archaeology points it out in the Boston slavery site that and activists, of course, have raised this for many years is that Faneuil Hall has this awkward combination of being the cradle of liberty, but made possible by this fortune that Peter Faneuil built in part by buying and selling enslaved people. So that's kind of some other topical context. How do you think different organizations in the city and particularly the Boston kind of historical tourism and educational facilities are doing right now at grappling with some of these uglier historical notes while still kind of maintaining its status as a historic draw of New England? Yeah, that, that's great. Uh, I think that, you know, from my perspective, as somebody who's, you know, working at a historic site, um, seeing visitors from all over the country, from all over the world. Um, it's challenging. And I think, you know, sometimes there's a perception that an organization isn't moving as quickly as it can or or doing as much as it can. And so I feel like I first and foremost just want to like support my peers and say, you know what, like we have financial constraints and we're trying to bring audiences along and get people to where we want them to be. So when I when I look at it through the lens of how challenging it can be to make these significant changes, I I'm happy with what I see happening. And I think there are organizations. Um, I think of the the Royal House in Medford, um, Revolutionary Spaces, which um, has the old State House and Old South Meeting House. I think there are organizations that are really um, digging into it and and trying to present things in a very different way. Um, but I think we have a long way to go because I think we are up against misconceptions that Boston has always been just a, you know, like a welcoming and inclusive and educated enclave. And like, it's really not that now, <laughs> nor has it ever been. So we have a lot we have a lot to do um, we have a lot lot on the record to correct and is it difficult to kind of try and pull those threads through time basically saying that the way that we are now uh kind of existing inequities or something like that are not kind of coming out of nowhere they're not an anomaly but to try and I think if I'm pulling on on a thread from something that you said earlier, you know, to bring people along in a way that says we're going to kind of complicate the history, but uh, you don't want people coming in, freaking out, and then deciding to leave the historical site because it's so much of kind of a shock or jarring. So how do you end up threading that needle saying this is why we need to complicate the narrative, but then at the same time, keep people on the bandwagon, so to speak? Yeah, so... I think for us, it starts with our, basically our why of, you know, why do we teach history? Why are we here? Why is it important that people visit Boston's historic sites? And so we believe that it's really to help people understand the present um, and therefore to help people think about how to impact the future, right? Because otherwise we're just telling nice stories and like nice stories are great, but like that's fiction, <laughs> you know, that's why we do fiction. Um, I think that it's in some ways it's simple because I think right now 
with our current staff, our board, our volunteers, right? Like we're very aligned on who we are and what we're trying to do, but we are also trying to have meaningful um, engagement with people from all walks of life, all the way across the, the political spectrum who are like on vacation and, and for the most part, like just looking to have a good time, right? Like some people come to us and they want a deep dive and like they want a challenging conversation, but I can't fault people who also like are in the North end because they want to have a cannoli and they want to get an Instagram shot. Like, I think that's valid. And so I think the biggest challenge is figuring out how to present information in a way that is fun, that is accurate, <laughs> and that is like of value and for a purpose. Um, and I think, you know, we continue to work on that. It's, uh, we've been lucky to work with some really great consultants um, to help us think about our interpretation and, um, you know, think about the words we use, right? Like even simple um, word choices can have an impact on how our visitors, you know, feel about what we're we're saying to them. So it it's really an ongoing exercise and, and we're always refining our messaging. And of course, right now, and the reason that we're talking about this today, as you mentioned, it's 300 years of the Old North Church site here, and you have been designated a site of conscience. So if that phrase is totally new to most listeners here, what makes a site of conscience? Yes, um, it's very exciting news for us. So um, the organization that um, oversees this uh, like designation and body of work is the International Coalition of Sites of Conscience. And um, they define a site of conscience as a museum, a historic site, or a memory initiative that is leveraging its history to make connections to present day struggles for human rights. And so of course, from everything that I've just said of you know why we exist and why we're teaching history, it's so aligned um, with, with our approach. Um, there are sites of conscience in, I believe 65 countries, but we were surprised to learn that we are actually only the second site in Boston um, with the Museum of Fine Arts actually having been the first site of conscience. Um, so I, I hope that soon there will be others because again, there are great organizations doing this type of work, but I think what's meaningful to us in this designation is that it recognizes that we're not alone, right? Like we're not out on a limb that we have, you know, peers in historic sites and museums all over the world who are wrestling with the same questions and trying to have the same type of impact. And so it's a really great support network for us. And you mentioned, of course, that you're working on developing new programming to kind of coincide with this vision, with this uh, identification uh, as a site of conscience here. So what changes? What's kind of the pivot in the actual programming to sort of broaden the scope of what you've been offering? Yeah, so I think there are there are two ways that we're um, coming at this shift. Um, and the one is like a little bit kind of insider or technical, right? So we have something that's called an interpretive plan, um, which if you are a, a visitor to a museum or historic site, you probably haven't heard of, but it's really a blueprint for how we tell our stories. 
especially for a place like Old North, where we have different buildings, um, different ways that people are experiencing the site. And so we don't want to be in a place where we're talking about Paul Revere here and we're talking about slavery there and it's very disconnected and the story is not cohesive. And so um, in our interpretive plan, you know, we think about the themes that we want to emphasize when we're telling um, these different stories. So, um, for example, one of the themes is the paradox of revolution. Um, not only the American Revolution, but most revolutions are born out of some type of inequity, right? So the American Revolution did not bring liberty and freedom to all, um, and it it has not yet. And so there's a great paradox there. Um, we're also looking at topics like um, artists as activists, right? We talked about how Longfellow's poem is really an act of activism, um, and it's uh, artists as activists is a long tradition that like obviously continues today. And so there's a lot of relevance in these things. But when we think about the actual visitor experience, right? So when someone comes to our site this year, um, if they last came five years ago, what's different? And I think the biggest difference is the knowledge that we have gained um, from our research fellow, um, again, Dr. Jamie Crumley, who um, just left us after a year of full-time research. So that has translated to um, a video series that she has produced that's available on the website, but it's also informed um, all of our interpretation from our, our guided tours to um, new signage that we're doing with support from the Yaki Foundation, um, to a new audio guide that's available at the church, which is available in both English and Spanish. Um, so lots of things that I think allow people to plug into this information and to have really as much or as little as they want. And I think before we wrap up, I'd kind of like to return to the thought that we had all the way at the start of this conversation, which is, what is the place for myth in teaching about history right now? Especially if you're talking about a place like Boston, where so much of its conception of self is tied up in its place in specifically the American Revolution and the myths that come along with that. So where does Paul Revere's ride fit in teaching about the history of Boston? Well, I think if we're looking at the, the factual uh, Paul Revere's ride, that there's very much a place for it. Um, because I think Paul Revere is an inspiring figure. And even though he didn't act alone and single-handedly changed the course of history, I think that actually makes it even more impact, um, impactful because you don't necessarily have to be the most important person in the room. You know, you just have to be motivated when you feel that something needs to be said or done. Um, and I think Boston's role in the revolution is important and we should be learning about that. But if we're looking at the mythologized version of Revere's Ride or of really of any part of our nation's founding, I just feel like at this point, there's no room for that. Um, I think that the way that history has been taught for so long is really about reinforcing white supremacy. Um, it is a victor's tale for the most part. And I just think it's really important that we start correcting the record. Um, cannot be done soon enough. Okay, well, thank you again to Nikki Stewart, Executive Director of Old North Illuminated, for joining me on the podcast. And to our listeners, we will be back in your ears next week. Mm -hmm.